welcome to Beyond the Paper Gown. I'm your host, Dr. Mitzi Crockover. As you may know, we focus on women's health issues, the factors that impact our health, and the innovations and innovators who are helping to improve it. We have such an innovator and creative thinker and doer today who noticed that there wasn't a lot of information or innovation for women experiencing the symptoms of perimenopause and aging. So she found out what women want, developed wellness programs focused on menopause, and created a roadmap for innovators to help them meet the needs of this population. Oh, and she also started a company selling tea aimed at reducing the symptoms of perimenopause, such as brain fog and hot flashes. Denise Pines is not only a trailblazer in women's health, her multifaceted career spans from leadership roles on medical boards that oversee the practice of healthcare providers and the admissions committee of a medical school, to producing award-winning and impactful documentaries, as well as television and radio shows. Today, we'll hear about Denise's projects and learn from her wealth of knowledge and experience. We have a very special guest today who wears many hats (laughs) and has really been uh, a force uh, in women's health in a variety of ways. In addition to all the roles I mentioned in the introduction, you're also a wellness advocate, correct? Yes, I'm absolutely. Yeah, I call myself an age enthusiast. (laughs) 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 Um, And yeah, I advocate um, mostly for women's health. um, And I have a particular keen interest in women of color, obviously, because I'm a woman of color. Um, And just the... um, you know, sort of the disparities that we find in women, just in women's health period, but then when it extends to women of color, uh, we see some more dire outcomes. So I I try to make sure I'm always inclusive of those women in the work that I do. I mentioned that you you founded Wise Paws Wellness, um, Tea Botanics, and the Foam Health Aging Project. All which, again, are very much around menopause. So give us a little taste of each one of those, and then I want to drill down on um, each one as well. Sure. You know, I sort of feel like, you know, like all of this has just been kind of how my life has evolved. You know, when it was interesting, when I was young, I was in the fashion business. I worked for really luxury brands like Louis Vuitton and Neiman Marcus, and then I felt like in fashion that I just wasn't, I didn't feel like the work that I was doing was really purposeful. Um, So I decided I needed a new place to live. And at the time I was in San Francisco uh, where, you know, where I grew up and I moved to Los Angeles and literally the next day it was the Rodney King riots. And my interest shifted into social justice and advocacy work and how to use media events and publishing to change and lift up African-Americans and Latino voices. So over the years, I've worked with the top 25 foundations in the world, top 50 corporations um, that I've partnered with. Um, And that, and I've always had sort of this interest in health and wellness. You know, initially my own health and wellness because I was an asthmatic child. And then eventually um, I realized that uh, my asthma had had reached a, a point 
where I could actually start moving my body. And that was around when I was about between 18 and 19. Um, and so that really created more of an interest in health when I realized that my health had transformed. Now I still have asthma, um, but it's, you know, it's very controlled, you know, I'm never without my inhaler, that type of thing. But, you know, I realized that we can stretch the boundaries of our, our, our health. So in entertainment, I've produced over a thousand hours of media content and wellness, you know, and worked on wellness events. And then poof, I get a hot flash in all of this, (laughs) in all of this, right? (laughs) And so that changed my, you know, that hormonal, um, you know, impact sort of changed my journey. And it made me start advocating for women at this life stage. Because one of the things I noticed that I hadn't noticed before in media is that we just didn't see, you know, women's voices definitely talking in this particular space. Um, And I knew that, you know, I could do it because I had the influence and power to be able to do it. And so I just decided I was going to bring all of my experience, my media experience, my event experience, and even I had a publishing company at one time. And then um, with a person I work with, we, we had a huge publishing division. And so, you know, that led me to um, the hot flashes led me to creating um, or co-creating, um, tea, you know, tea botanics and hot flash tea. And that led me to talking to so many women around the country and realizing that women were, you know, sort of I was hearing three consistent themes that they were um, confused by the language, right? Perimenopause, bioidenticals, hormone replacement therapy. Uh, so they were compu- confused by the language. They um, felt that they were alone, like they were the only ones that were experiencing this and that they didn't really know where they felt like they also weren't prepared. That why did, even for myself, why did, as, as involved as I am in health, why did I believe in my mind I was not going to have a hot flash? Why was I not prepared for the moment when it did happen? So we're in the healthcare journey for women in particular, have we let them down? And so that's when I decided I was going to create Wise Paws and bring the experts to these women um, in a place where they felt safe. And then one day I'm reading articles around femtech and everything was around fertility and pregnancy and periods and there was very little about uh, our technology around, you know, aging women's health, anything for women who were over 40. And so I decided that I was going to coin this word called fem aging. And it was going to mean this sort of particular, fo- this particular focus on women 40 plus around creating um, innovation specifically designed for them. And I thought to really do that was to release a report, right? So I worked with a third-party research firm, and we released our first report called Fem Aging. At the time, it was 2020 Health Tech Report. 
And so it was 2020, so it came out during the pandemic. So it was really tough. We ended up having to do a um, fem aging COVID report um, to be able to get some traction, you know, sort of during that time. And that I did that to really create a roadmap for innovators to innovate correctly for women, for investors to know what is viable in the marketplace, and then for clinicians to work more with um, innovators, right? And so I also do um, menopause in the workplace training. Um, I do it for, you know, sort of the state for, of California, and I do it for a lot of the major entertainment companies. Um, and next year, I'm hoping to work with medical schools to improve health, women's health curriculum. Um, I'm going to start with the school that I'm a part of, but we've really got to change like how we talk about women's health and specifically these years leading up to and including menopause. Nobody can see me, but I am nodding my head like, you know, a bobblehead right now because that for me is one of the key areas. We talk about innovation, we talk about investment, we talk about research, but what is hasn't happened in the way that I we both obviously think is that clinicians in training aren't getting the information. And uh, they're having to get it piecemeal outside with CMEs, and it's yeah. you know very uh, sporadic and uh, fragmented. I would say so, exactly. So, so what's so so what's scary about that, right? Is that current practicing physicians that women go to, including some OBGYNs, but definitely their general practitioners, which most people go to, um, they have there's a knowledge gap there, but then there's here we are, we're training the next doctors to take over for those doctors, and they have a knowledge gap, exactly. right? It, I mean, it's mind-boggling. That's one of those things where I just go like, you know, huh? <laughs> no, you know, it's interesting. When I was at the Women's Health Center at UCLA, I was asked to give grand rounds at another medical school. And again, I guess when you're in the midst of it, you think everybody, you know, understands it. And I had students come up to me and go, we've never heard this before. I do think that with the increasing amount of women, I think with the increasing amount of focus, um, but as you know, uh, physicians and medical schools are kind of the last ones, late adopters, let's put it that way. But uh, hopefully there's enough impetus right now. So let's talk a little bit about the roadmap and the report. Because you said you started this in 2020, and I just saw the 2023 report. So yeah. talk a little bit about as the kinds of things that you're doing and the innovators that we're seeing out there and um, and even the practitioners that are involved. Have we made an impact? What what have you seen or are we some are. things still the same? We are. You know, I mean, you know, sort of like I said, you know, women's health is is beyond fertility. Right. When I started this, that's what I would always say. Because when we think of women's health, which is one of the reasons why we see menopause in, you know, solutions in such a deficit um, and conversations and the healthcare industry in such a gap stage is that we've only focused on women in these sort of fertility years, right? <clears throat> and so when it comes to post-childbearing years, um, innovation and research and even clinical practice has really um, suffered as a result of that over-focus 
of that time frame on women. And it just sort of follows with society, right? Like we don't care in general about older people. And so we just really wanted to look at femme aging tech as, you know, innovations that were software, innovations that were diagnostic, that were devices, that were nutraceuticals. So looking a little differently, you know, wearables, and of course the pharmaceuticals, and then clothing because of the, um, the, you know, the hot flashes or the night sweats, um, there's, you know, interesting solutions that people have come up with around clothing for these women. So where we're seeing the biggest strides is in vaginal health, right? In vaginal health, there's, we're starting to see um, delivery of um, products more efficiently, more efficiently in the vaginal area. Um, we're seeing more improved um, solutions for women who have incontinence, improved solutions for women who have um, dryness. Um, we're starting to see more of that growth. And then on the other side, from a, the digital side, in telehealth, we're seeing companies that are coming on board who are trying to find um, physician specialists focused on women's health 40 plus so that women, there, there is a place women can go to. Because of COVID, I think there's been a real turn to obviously telehealth, but also along with that, a focus on convenience. So being able to diagnose your own UTI or getting, uh, you know, over the counter vaginal creams for yeast infections, or yeah. just again, having anything from Amazon delivered by tomorrow. <laughs> My sense is that that has really propelled a lot of women into, you know, being more willing and able to look for their own solutions. Yes. In our um, recent report, the 2023 report, one of the insights that um, came from that report was that women of color, you know, when they show up to the doctor, the doctor tends not to listen to them. And so when they show up saying, you know, I'm having this, I'm experiencing that, you know, the doctors sort of poo-poo them away. And so what we found was that those women, Black women, Latino women, um, um, look for at-home tests, at-home hormone tests, at-home UTI tests, so then they can come back to the doctors and say, like, look, this is what this is saying. Can we talk about that? Can we, you know, begin from what these results are, right? Sure. They feel that that is, um, um, you know, sort of a like a, 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 um, a partner for them, right, in their health care. Sure. So, um, so, yes, those kinds of, I think that's going to grow. I think personalization of um, healthcare is yeah. really going to explode. You know, AI now, you know, AI has been around for a long time. You know, people act like it's something new. But personalization of health, you know, your health care needs are different from my health care needs. I want health care needs that are for me. You want health care needs that are for you. So that's where I think health is moving. Um, and those people who are able to sort of connect that innovation around personalization um, is, I think, going to be the ones that are going to survive. I mean, one of the things that we do with Fem Aging is we partner with um, 
Koretsu Forum, and they're one of the largest angel networks in the world to host pitch competitions so that we could help elevate a lot of this innovation in front of investors so they can see that there's a lot around the world that is happening and it needs to be financed, you know, like, you know, I mean, I just read about some company that got an AI company doing generative AI now that got a billion dollar investment. Are you serious right now? Like there are women suffering with their health and some of these companies can barely get 50,000 or 100,000. You know, they get told that it's a niche market. It's like, how can 52% of a population be a niche market? market but right? again, a whole other thread there. Oh, yeah, you, yeah. You, you've really, uh, you know, hit that nail on the head. Two things that come up for me uh, yeah. from your comments. One is the very important service that a lot of these companies are doing. Because we haven't had research in women's health, because mm. it is expensive, we haven't had a lot of data. And now yes. you've got these companies able to really generate their own data from, you know, their own uh, clients. You know, and they obviously ask for that permission. But I think of a company, Evie, who has been mm -hmm. focused on the microbiome of the vagina. And mm -hmm. they mm -hmm. have evolved with the information that they've been able, you know, to get from a situation that really didn't have a lot of data in the first place. Yes. Uh, and there's so many of those. The second uh, item that you brought up was the differences between different ethnic groups. Yes. And so I saw in your report that you focus a little bit on that. So what are some of the other differences that we need to um, take a look at? It, yeah, it's interesting. So, I mean, so the report is, you know, about all women. And then what we did is we over-indexed on women of color, black women, um, Latino women, and Asian women. Um, and we found, you know, different health fem um, tech solutions that they're looking for. You know, black women are looking for things that help to relieve stress for them in their lives, right? Just being a, a you know, a black woman, not on top of like having all of these other health issues that you may have, but when you layer stress on top of that, and as a physician, you know, it exasperates that health issue. So we found that that's what they are looking for. Latino women are really interested around sexual and vaginal health. And so solutions around that are really important. Fem femtech solutions around that is really important. And then for Asian women, um, what we have found is that hair loss. So that community is experiencing thinning hair that we don't even talk about in their community. And so solutions around thinning hair um, are really cropping up. So once you start actually doing research on women and women at you know you know particular ages and in particular communities, you start to discover what the needs are, you know what their wants are, and then you innovate around those as opposed to innovating something over here in a silo. You know we in March we're launching um, something called Fem Analytics and Femaya. And they're both AI generative platforms that provides additional insights and education, as well as connecting people to people in the space, whether it's investors, whether it's innovators, whether it's clinicians. We're creating this platform so that people who are interested in women's health, I mean, to give you, you know, broad women's health information, but because we have such specific aging women's health, I mean, we really can drill down 
into some real narrow areas. Um, I am working with Delta Dental right now around oral health and menopause. Yes. And we never really talk about that. At WisePause, I've always had like a table topic conversation around oral health and menopause um, because of how the microme changes in the mouth as we age. Um, and if you don't begin to address it actually early before you get there, right? You have you could start having an incredible amount of bone loss where you're sure. not even able to put an implant when you need one in. So, um, you know, and I, the implications I'm just, for heart disease as well. We know exactly. that it's the inflammation. The inflammation, exactly. You know, when I first met you just a, a few months ago, you were on a panel and you talked about, and it really, you know, stuck with me that when you first looked around to find out what's the information on women of this age, you couldn't find it. And so then you partnered with AARP. So talk a little bit about that. Sure. Yeah. AARP. I love AARP. I've worked with them for um, a, probably two decades now. Obviously, AARP focuses on, you know, the the older person. And so when I started getting into this work, I came to them. And what was interesting, they probably wouldn't want me to talk about this, but what was interesting is I went to them saying, hey, I know you guys are the experts on uh, and you have all this menopause data. Here's some of the menopause data I'm trying to get. Can you, um, um, you know, provide me with some research you have and articles and da, da, da. And three weeks go by. And so I, I contact my friend and said, like, hey, I asked you for this information. <laughs> Can I get it? She's like, Denise, I'm embarrassed to say we don't have it. We don't focus on that. And I was like, you're AARP. <laughs> you target right. the 50 year old. And so that opened up in their universe. It opened up the fact that they weren't focusing on it. And so we've had this great partnership um, where we work with the WisePods wellness events, as well as this research data. Was there any other findings that you thought were interesting in that respect? One thing, and we don't really think about this in the context of, you know, health, but caregiving. Yes. Caregiving always falls on the woman. And so when you think of that 40 to 60 year old woman, not only is she caretaking for her family, her husband, let's be honest, um, her yeah. children, sure. but also for her, her parents, her well, husband's parents, right, or grandparents if they're still alive. And so caretaking became um, really for Asian communities a real standout issue, right? 40% of Asian women over the age of 40 are already caretaking for um, a family member outside their, of their immediate family. Was that higher than for other um, groups of women? Yes, it is. Really? One, huh. because there is an expectation in the Asian community yeah. for them to caretake inside their home. Sure. You know, other communities, it, it is too, I mean, the Latina community, the black community, um, but you'll also find those communities do look at other facilities to support that. And in an Asian community, that's sort of a no-no. Talk a little bit about your uh, botanical teas and how you came to be that kind of entrepreneur. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Again, 
it started with the hot flash <laughs> and um, it was so funny you know when I had that first hot flash I thought I was having a heart attack and I thought you know the first thing I thought you know you know you know how your mom always says your skirt might fly up and someone will see exactly. right and so my first thought was, I thought, oh my God, do I have on the right underwear? <laughs> because when they come in here and get me, I've got to have the right underwear on, right? <laughs> and so once I had the fourth hot flash, I finally realized I was actually having hot flashes. And um, I thought, you got to be kidding. I called my doctor up and he said, wow, D, you know, I thought you eat pretty well and you exercise like all the time. He's like, I really just didn't think that was going to be your experience. But um, he reminded me of this tea that had these hormonal properties that he had discovered some years prior and had given it to me maybe a year prior to this happening and said, hey, why don't you take that and let me know how it works out. I realized that I was having severe hot flashes, meaning I was having a hot flash every hour and through the oh. night. Yes, very, very disruptive. So it was easy for me then to, once I had did that, to then take this tea and to see whether or not it was effective. And within five days, like they had reduced down the half. And by like the 10th, 12th day, that I was having maybe one hot flash a day. And I called him up and said, what is this? And he talked to me about um, GABA and mm -hmm. that, you know, I mean, we had to go and study this for like a year, um, but we, we studied, uh, you know, how to get GABA to a particular um, potency in the tea, but other properties of this particular tea that also elevated to help balance sort of our control center in our brain and our reproductive system so that the hormones would balance themselves out. Now, of course, you have to drink the tea every day, but it in fact has worked for about 75 to 80% of the women who actually drink our tea. Um, and so that's, and then we, then I discovered with drinking the tea that it really helped with my mental clarity, right? It really helped me to stay focused. And because I do so much, you know, I'm super always multitasking. And it really, I stopped drinking the tea for hot flashes because I didn't have them anymore, but I still was having this sort of like mental, like lack of clarity. And so I drink my, I drink my tea almost every day. Wow. We came out with one called brain fog tea, um, just for that mental clarity that I need in making decisions fast, um, reading information quicker and being able to absorb it. Sure. Just to go back, just to make sure everybody's on the same page. So GABA is a neurotransmitter yes. that is related to reducing pain. Um, yes, and calming the nervous system and, um, and, and a couple other pr properties sure. that we have found that it has, yes. <laughs> so how did you study what was in the teas? And so you say you have different formulations? Yeah, so my business partner is a doctor and a scientist, and um, so we went to where this tea is from is in Taiwan, and so we went and met with all of the uh, tea experts who are sp specific tea experts in GABA tea, um, and then we met the renowned woman, um, which happened to be a woman, 
um, who is the super uber expert in um, GABA tea um, and is um, a former professor at UC Davis and at the University of Taiwan. Um, so we really um, studied this a lot. We also put a particular mineral in our soil to make sure that we have consistency of our harvest um, each time that we harvest the tea. Oh, wow. Mm -hmm. And it's all organic. Um, we only work with organic farmers. We test every one of the harvests. Do most people that seek these teas out, are they doing that instead of, for example, estrogen therapy, or are they doing it as an adjunct? I think it's a first step. I, I say that RT is sort of a first step. You know, if you're, you know, you're getting your first hot flash or, you know, whatever, um, and you're not ready yet to go pharma is this could be a first step for you, right? To see, you know, what does this work? Does this help you to get under control? And then if not, you, if you're still having severe hot flashes, then, you know, the next step is definitely going to your doctor and seeing what other, um, you know, solutions might be available for you, giving, you know, whatever your health condition is. I, I just want to shift because you are a filmmaker and you've made mm -hmm. some very consequential films. And so talk a little bit about, certainly about the one about birthing justice. So, you know, with birthing justice, you know, our overarching, you know, sort of uh, uh, tagline we would always say is that every woman deserves a beautiful birth story, right? Birth, you know, having having a baby is a wonderful, joyful experience. Why isn't every single woman enjoying that? And, and you know, and in our country, just from a, a maternal mortality standpoint, I mean, America ranks 23rd. We're number one. And when it gets to maternity outcomes, we're 23, which means we are in, the, you know, developing country stats. And people don't really realize this. And I'm not talking about black women, 23. I'm talking about all women, right? We just have not had a focus on maternal care. You know, Birthing Justice is definitely, um, you know, the film shines light on a really complex issue, right? There's no one answer to this issue because it encompasses racism, it encompasses how the medical system is actually designed, it encompasses the lack of financial resources um, that keep hospitals and OBGYNs working and midwives if they are part of that construct. Um, and the really simple interaction between human beings with each other. So in this sense, the doctor and the patient, right? Um, and you know, I always say that we have to get away from that relationship being transactional to being more interpersonal, right? So when it's interpersonal, you're actually listening to the patient. And one of the things that we have discovered in black women's mortality um, is that doctors don't listen to them. So if they call and say, I'm having a little bleeding, you know, the doctor will say, oh, let's see how that is in another week. Well, if you're a pregnant woman, any bleeding is is urgent. Of 
course. That is come into my office immediately or I need you to get to the ER. That's not let's wait and see. It's, it, you, you know, I mean, you know how critical it is during the whole, you know, nine months of, um, uh, of the birth journey. Um, every single moment is a moment that could be at risk. So, you know, some people see the easy answers as, you know, women having more doulas or there being more midwives um, to help solve this, you know, sort of deeply ingrained crisis. But we wanted to show that it is some of those things and then it's more. Um, so we hope that what we did is really address that. We have found that now this film is a CME. Um, we work with the Federation of State Medical Boards and we launched it on November 1st and about 438 physicians um, were able to get a 90 minute um, AMA um, uh, credit. And it's still that's still available um, for anyone that go to the Federation's um, website. Terrific. So what was really interesting about this film, we also did a birthing justice impact report, was that. 48% of the people who saw this film were in healthcare and that the healthcare community really embraced this film and has used it on ground rounds. They've used it, um, you know, inside their own organizations, um, reviewing and um, their own policies, their procedures. Um, so we were really, really um, surprised that it was going to be embraced by the healthcare community at such a high level that it has been. Well, congratulations and thank you. Thank you. That is so powerful. It yeah. really does show, you know, the impact of, of something like that. What did I not ask you that you wanted to make sure that we covered today? Did I mention I'm doing a menopause film? No. I didn't talk about that. Okay, so I'm doing a minute. We're shooting now. Like next week we are in... Um, uh, Dr. Um, uh, is it Moscone, the brain lady? Oh, Lisa Moscone, yeah. Listen, Lisa Moscone, we're interviewing her next next week. Um, we're going to follow um, a physician, mm -hmm. um, Dr. Shen, out of John Hopkins, uh, with, along with a patient. We've already done a ton of interviews with so many people. So, yeah, so I see menopause as a public health issue. Right. I think that if we couch this around as a public health issue, we can start to get more attention from government, more attention from philanthropy, and more attention from corporations. Um, if we get people to understand that if we let women suffer during these years, that what happens on the other side of menopause becomes real dire, right? Um, we know that more women have Alzheimer's. Why is that, right? What happens inside these menopausal years, this drop in estrogen and, and that connection with the brain? Again, we need more research to really, you know, to really make that direct connection, but we already can see certain things that are happening. But these are the things, that's why I'm going to call this, this is a public health issue and we need to look at it like that so we can focus more on everything that needs to change. Doctors, you know, closing the knowledge gap on treatment and management of menopause with physicians, educating our up and coming physicians with the correct type of curriculum, and then educating women, right? Letting women 
you know, feel free to express what is actually happening with their bodies and not to not talk about that when they go into the physician's office. That's great. When will that be ready? We are hoping um, that it will air on PBS in October for um, uh, International Menopause Day. Fabulous. Well, we'll look forward to that and we'll, yes. again, keep our listeners apprised. That's, that's okay. terrific. My final question, and I know that right. you're very focused on wellness. What are one or two suggestions that you would recommend to our listeners that they can start today to do to better their health? Um, you know, I would say just take a pulse of your body. Like do a whole week where you go, how do I feel from my head to my toes? Like, what am I feeling? And apply it to everything. Like, how is my hearing? What's my vision? How far can I see right now? Um, when I put something in my mouth, really actually taste it, right? So, and, you know, go, is that, gosh, that's salty, that chip. But I eat that chip all the time. But really to get more in tune. I think this stage is the point of which we need to get in tune with ourselves. Make a decision to include something like in that's for your body better, whether or not you go and get a massage, whether or not you say, I'm going to take a yoga, a stretch yoga class. So maybe you say, I'm going to drink a bottle of water every day, right? You need to drink more, but I'm just going to drink a bottle of water every day. Um, I'm going to like have a piece of fruit, but not have that donut, right? And then I think from a, like a, a doctor perspective is to be prepared when you go to the doctor. Don't just show up. Don't just show up and think a miracle on the other side is going to happen. That they're going to figure <laughs> all of that. You know, you know, you're a clinician. You know, that's what that was. That's what's happening. Talk, you know, right. save me. Right. In 15 you know, minutes. <laughs> in 15 minutes. When you go, if you're going and you have pain, no exact put a sticky on it right put a little sticky or an x on it and go it's right here and be specific it's a sharp pain or it's a dull pain all of these really help your clinician really fine-tune what is happening and they can really have it can help to have a good outcome for you as opposed to you walk out of there you know the doctor generally guessed something gave you a prescription and now it's six months later and you're still, that didn't get really solved. And that can be something that's now exasperated. So be prepared when you go to the doctor. Right. Or bring those test results that you talked about earlier. Yes, <laughs> yes, it at home tests. Uh, so Denise Pines, I could talk to you for hours. Oh, um, but, I've enjoyed uh, it. Oh, I did as well. Thank you so much for being with us. Oh, no, thank you. It's been my pleasure. As we wrap up this episode of Beyond the Paper Gown, I'd like to extend my thanks to Denise Pines for sharing her journey, insights, and the incredible work she's doing to transform the landscape of women's health as a force for change. We will have links to the resources we mentioned in our discussion in our podcast notes, so do check them out. And I thank you for joining us on Beyond the Paper Gown. 
I invite you to visit our website at beyondthepapergown.com to sign up for our newsletter and browse our articles and podcasts, as well as our marketplace and make an impact page of nonprofits focused on women's health and more. I also invite you to follow us on LinkedIn, Instagram, and Facebook. And one more request, please leave a review and rate us on your favorite podcast platform. It does help us get noticed. Until next time, take good care. This episode was produced by Patrick Shambiati and me, and our associate producer is Kyla McMillian.